Good morning, ASI. Happy Sabbath and welcome to Sabbath School. As we get started this morning with Sabbath School, I'd like us to bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, indeed, as the words of the song we just heard, you are the one that we adore. Our hearts hunger for you. And this morning at this time of study, Father, I just ask that your Holy Spirit, who is already present with us, will be with us now as we open your word for this very important study. Guide us. Direct our hearts toward you. And Father, may we discover something strange and new that will transform us into your image and hasten your coming. Be with each of the panelists, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, it's a great privilege to be here uh, as the moderator of this panel today. Not because I'm an expert, but because we certainly all love the gospel and want to share it together. As often is the case with panels, sometimes we could exclude the audience, but we want to include you today. And uh, so I'd, I'd like you to listen and actively, actively listen. I am Lindy Schwartz, and I'm the moderator of the panel, and I'm from Ohio. And to my far left, I have uh, Bob Hunsaker. He does happen to be a relative. He is my brother-in-law. And then we have Elias Baquero, and uh, he is from California. And then to my immediate right, we have Justin Kim, who is no stranger to our audience. And then also James Rafferty, my far right. And again, he's certainly no stranger to us. We're going to open the word this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the book of Galatians from where the study is today. The book of Galatians. I'll be reading the entirety of the passage, which is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 19, and then we'll have a panel discussion. The title of the lesson today is The Priority of the Promise, and inherent in the title, we recognize that somehow the promise has priority. So let's read together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only in a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. 
So today we want to have a robust discussion about this passage, and I want to ask the first question to our panelists. In the interest of time, I believe that several commentators agree that covenant and promise are essentially the same thing. Some may disagree, and that's okay, and, and I can be challenged on that as I make that statement. In verse 16, however, let me read that again. In verse 16, the text says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. So the question then is, why was the promise not made just to Abraham or seeds, but to his seed, singular? And who was the main recipient anyway of this promise? Inherent in this question, I'd like you to also discuss the concept that there is something crucial, central, and core to the gospel in this text. And what is it? Andy, it's so, I mean, Lindy, whew, it's so exciting. You told me not to do that, huh? He just called me Andy. That's my wonderful twin sister who I adore. I, I think will forgive it, I you, think, James. I think it is so exciting that we're studying Galatians. Yes. And I'm hoping this time we get it right. It seems like from our discussion previously and even from the quarterly, which I think has been really super, I've really enjoyed it, that we are on track this time to understand that the focus of the book of Galatians is the seed being Jesus Christ. That the promises were made to Jesus, not primarily to us or even to Abraham's descendants, but to him as a descendant of Abraham, primarily because he's the only one that could actually fulfill the covenant promises, that he is the focus of the covenant, and he is the covenant keeper. So I love this whole idea that the seed is, is singled out by Abraham, I mean by uh, Paul himself in Galatians. He says, he emphasizes, not seeds, but to see the seed, speaking of Jesus Christ. Yes. Yeah, I think, uh, just following up what you're saying there, James, I think it's really neat um, to appreciate all the promises God has for us, but we don't commonly think about all those promises relating that Jesus read those promises. Hey, that's in there for me. You know, when he saw that promise to Abraham that said, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, he said, you know, that's speaking to me. So he read those Old Testament stories, and uh, as he was growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, he said, these promises in the Old Testament are for me to experience. And that, I think, brings up the point that just like we have the uh, privilege of having faith in God's promises, Jesus experienced faith in God's promises to him. Amen. Okay. Um. So also, I, I just wanted to look at something here that I think is really interesting in the quarterly, and that is we misunderstand sometimes the idea of a covenant, and I don't know, uh, in my mind, it's, it's been a little bit blurry. And I thought this was really, I just want to read this. This is right on the first day. Actually, it's Sunday's lesson, July 30. So it's, it's right as the quarterly begins to enter into the discussion. And I read this. I, I uh, started. I, I emphasized. I just thought, wow, this is really powerful. This can really impact people. So it impacted me. So a covenant, it says, and a will are generally different. A covenant and a will are generally different. A covenant is typically a mutual agreement between two or more people, often called a contract or a treaty. In, a contra in contrast, excuse me, a will is the declaration of a single person. Now you get that so far, right? 
A covenant is like an agreement between two parties, but a will is like a declaration of a single person. This is my will and testament, okay? Now, I've always read the word covenant, and I've understood automatically it's an agreement between two people. As the quarterly describes this, it goes on to say it this way. It says that the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, never translates God's covenant with Abraham with the Greek word used for mutual agreements or contracts, okay? Instead, it uses the word for a testament or a will. Why? Probably because the translators recognized that God's covenant with Abraham was not a treaty between two individuals where mutually binding promises are made. On the contrary, God's covenant was based on nothing other than his own will. No strings, no ifs, ands, or buts was attached. Abraham was simply to take God at his word. I love that. Okay, very good. You know, uh, what's, what's great about that is that, you know, it shows that we, if it's a will, we then become heirs. And it's not something that we work towards. We just happen to have such a loving God Amen. that he gave us this inheritance. And we, by faith, appropriate it. And so it, it's great that it's, it's something that shows that it's not something that we can do in our own strength. Yeah, I was just going to say the point you're bringing out there, James, it sort of is in the context, really. Even though the word is covenant, it says uh, no one can annul or add to it. So in a two-party system, either one can annul it. But in a one-party system, only the one who makes the will can annul it. So this, it's bringing that out there that, that there's nothing we can do to annul God's promise to us. He's always going to be faithful even if we're faithless. Okay. Now, this is an awesome point you're both making. But we've gotten a little ahead of ourselves. I want to bring us back a little bit um, because we're going to come and discuss this point. That's a very vital point that James and Elias and Bob have all made. But I want to drill down a little further on this text that we have just read uh, in verse 16. There are many items there, and certainly the promise and the covenant is also in there. We'll come back to that. But I want to read an interesting text, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. If we could, if we could look over there, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Um, this is an interesting passage. It says that for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, how would you apply that text to the seed, Jesus Christ? Was Jesus Christ righteous by faith? If he was righteous by faith, how could that be? After all, he was the divine son of God. I think, you know, when Paul mentions seed versus seeds, he's, he's making a distinction between the singular and the plural. If it were seeds, if it were plural, it would be up to us. It would be up to human beings. It would be up to our, our performance, our, our fulfilling of the law. But he mentions seed, a singular, singularity. There's, there's going to be a, a, almost an anomaly with this seed. Uh, I don't want to emphasize too much the divinity or too much the humanity of Christ. Christ. Christ is Christ, but he comes and he fulfills that component of which Israel has failed with its, throughout its entire history. Israel, or Jesus becomes the new Israel, and where Israel failed in a lack of faith, Jesus comes and his faith replaces all their failing, failures. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, to me, I remember when someone talked to me about Jesus having faith a few years ago, that was a new thought to me. 
And it's been really encouraging to me over the years to appreciate that just as I need to walk by faith and trusting in the Father, Jesus understands that by experience. He didn't have, uh, you know, he wasn't born with a logo software in his brain. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to, to grow in his faith. He wasn't ready for Calvary at two years old or at 10 years old. His faith had to grow and mature as he believed and trusted yeah. in God's promises. And, and that's an encouragement to us, I think. Yeah, no, I, I love what you just said. Faith is not some abstraction. It's not something that, that's objective and you get. It's based in a relationship with Jesus. I, I, I love this because um, it, it's, this, this transformed my, my, my experience. Faith uh, is based on, on two elements, according to Hebrews chapter 11. The goodness of God and the power, the ability of God. And whenever we're in a crisis of faith, those two, those two things are questioned. I love my grandmother. She is a million years old. I know, I will, without a doubt, she loves me. But when, in a, when I'm where, when in a dark alley, I know she is not able, she is not powerful enough to defend me against any enemies that may come about. Now, there's, there's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. I know he, well, I don't know him now, but back, back ago, he had the muscle tissue to protect me. I know he has the power to do so. But I have no relationship. I know he doesn't have a good character. He will not defend me in, in, a, character, in, in, a, in a situation. So in a, in a crisis of faith, I, I always have to ask myself, God, are you good enough to save me in this situation? Well, of course you're good. Of course you're loving. But are you strong enough? And these are, these are, this is where doubt comes in. And this is, these, these are, I believe, the struggles that Jesus had to develop during his lifetime and through the promises of God that, that he's developed in his faith. And that's the faith that he transfers to all of us through sanctification. To me, the other aspect of, of Jesus' faith in us, it's, it's analogous to when, when you as a parent or a teacher or whatever, even though you see in the student or the child an inability to do what they need to do, you speak to them encouragement and you speak to them that, that they're better than they are. And in, in investing in them that faith, it causes them to experience the things that they wouldn't be able to experience if you hadn't spoken of them or, if you want to use the word, accounted them better than they were. So that's what God is essentially doing towards us. He's saying, listen, you're not where you could be, where I want you to be, but I, I believe in you. I have confidence in you. If you trust in me, I will bring you to this point. It's his faith in us that can produce a responsive faith. It's his confidence in us that can produce a responsive faith in us to him. You know, I really see that taking place on Calvary. The whole life of Christ was a preparation for Calvary. And we know that that was something he exercised uh, as Justin said, he had to trust in not only God's goodness, but also his power to deliver him. It was dark. But I also think about this. When Christ comes to Calvary, everyone has forsaken him. Everyone is gone. The whole human race, Satan is whispering in his ear, looks like they're not going to respond to this gift of love. And it becomes very dark for Christ. At that point, I want to read this statement. It's found in Faith and Works, page 72. It says, it is faith that works by love that is witnessed by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. It is the love that he has for my soul. Christ has died for me. He has purchased me at an infinite cost, and he has atoned for everything that is an offensive to him. He is dying by faith in us that we will respond, even though everything around him tells him we're not going to respond. He's going to do it by faith. I love that picture, that, that beautiful picture of God's heart. And James, I agree with you. 
um, Jesus Christ was dying having faith in us that someone would respond, he was also dying by having faith in his father. Ellen White speaks of how he uh, was victorious by faith. I just, as we close out this particular section, I want to read an interesting quote to think about, um, and that, that Jesus Christ's entire life was one of faith. One of the first instances of Ellen White's writing was in The Desire of Ages, page 336, paragraph 1. And when I came across this, I was surprised, but this is just to, to close this section, just to, to nail down the point that by faith, Jesus Christ was righteous. When, when Jesus was awakened, this is when the storm came up and the disciples were upset. When Jesus was awakened to meet the storm, he was in perfect peace. There was no trace of fear in word or look, for no fear was in his heart. But he rested not in the possession of almighty power. It was not as the master of earth and sea and sky that he reposed in quiet. That power he laid down, and he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. He trusted in his father's might. It was in faith, faith in God's love and care that Jesus rested and the power of that word which stilled the storm was the power of God. And I think this is a wonderful quote, letting us recognize that in this promise, we see here the faith of Jesus. It would take faith to accomplish the promise. And that's, that's life for us. Okay, now let's just move to the, the next uh, question. Here. And, and James began to hit on the question already, and he already read the section there. I want to get a little bit more into this, this concept of covenants, because I think that not only are other Christians a little bit confused about what the covenants are all about, but sometimes, even in our church, we can be confused about what the covenants are really about. Um, and so, James, you already read that from the quarterly. Let me just reiterate Part again. Part of it. There's another section of it. Yes, okay, there's more, there's more to it, and, and let's do that. So, again, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, never translates God's covenant with Abraham with the Greek word used for mutual agreements or contracts, syntheki. Instead, it uses the word for testament or will, diatheki. Why does Paul use that word, and what are the implications inherent in the use of mutual agreements versus will. Well, it's in the context of, of Galatians, they're talking about circumcision and where the role of the yes. works takes place. Yes. And in a contract, I need to do something and the other person needs to do something. And if I follow through what, what I do, I'll get what I agreed upon what the, I just got confused, but you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and in a unilateral agreement, I can do nothing. I just, I just almost sit there and I wait for the, the, the will to carry on the power that it has to do. Yeah. And this is the, this is the, uh, the, the model of which the, the, the biblical covenants come from. We can do nothing. Circumcision, and we have our modern day circumcision yes. um, uh, manifestations today, but we can do nothing it, it is, it, to add to that, that righteousness component. Okay. He's, right. he's going a little bit further than that uh, also in the second paragraph. I'll just read it here. It says, Paul picks up on this double meaning of a will and covenant in order to highlight specific features of God's covenant with Abraham. 
as with a human will, God's promises concerns a specific beneficiary, excuse me, a specific beneficiary, excuse me, I'm, I'm beneficiary. beneficiary, that's thank you, Abraham and his offspring. It also involves an inheritance. Most important to Paul is the unchanging nature of God's promise. In the same way that a, person cannot, a person's will cannot be changed once it has been put in force, into force, so the giving of the law through Moses simply, cannot simply nullify God's previous covenant with Abraham. God's covenant is a promise, and by no means is God a promise breaker. So here's the point. Justin started on it. He began it with mentioning circumcision, and, and definitely that was a, a, a fire, a point of, of contention with the Jews. But as we come down to our time in 1888, we come into another controversy. It's okay for us as Adventists to say, oh yeah, circumcision, that wasn't part of the covenant. We don't need to be circumcised, etc. But now we, we see a broader perspective of the law in Galatians, including the moral law. And basically, Galatians is speaking not only of the ceremonial law, but also of the moral law. And what God is saying here is, hey, God made a promise based on what he was going to accomplish without the moral law. You do not complete God's covenant by obeying the moral law. The moral law was added later. It's not, it can't delete, it can't undermine, it can't nullify the covenant promise that God made, which is a will, and he's going to accomplish that will. We're going to inherit that will, that salvation promise that God has given us without the law. It's not through obedience to the moral law that we inherit that, that promise. And, and even from the beginning, you know, speaking of circumcision, if you read Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verse 6, it says, And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul that thou mayest live. I mean, from the beginning, it's always been God working in us. It's Him. He, he's the, the one giving the promise, fulfilling the promise, and we're, we're just receiving it. It's interesting. Ellen White makes this interesting statement, Steps of Christ, that the spirit of Pharisaism is the spirit of human nature. And we have this natural bias and bent towards legalism. And we can even turn righteousness by faith into a legalistic mindset. Ellen White says that there's danger of placing merit on faith. Yes. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, well, it's a two-part system. God's part is all that he does. And then he, in response to my faith, he's obligated to me and he owes me. My part is faith. Therefore, we are both contributing to this salvation process. Rather than appreciating that my faith is merely appropriating all that he's already done. It's, appreci- it's appreciating a pre-existing reality rather than a creating a reality that did not previously exist. Yes. Which, which makes our faith important. But it, doesn't, but it doesn't allow it to be meritorious. Yeah, our, our faith becomes God's accommodating our free will rather than another work that we need to do to earn God's favor towards us. We don't earn God's favor by being faithful. We respond to his favor towards us by being faithful. Okay. okay. Um, so, Bob, since you mentioned that, let me ask you a question. I want to make sure we're all in agreement. First of all, before we do that... Um, I believe that God, it seems that he wanted to make, it, make us sure that um, this is not a contractual agreement. Do you agree with that? What does not entering into a contractual agreement as opposed to will do to us? 
How does that make us feel to not enter into a contractual agreement? I think when you're in a contractual agreement, to one degree or another, you're going to do your part under a sense of obligation merely. And God is not wanting us to relate to him in a sense of obligation merely because we're required to do so. He wants us to relate to him because we see something in him to appreciate. We see something in him that's beautiful and attractive, and we respond from our heart. Not because we're obligated to to get my slice of the pie. We're responding because, you know, he is so beautiful, he's so attractive, he's related to me so faithfully and so well. How can I do anything else but say, thank you, Lord, I want to be part of your kingdom. And in addition to that, uh, a contract, an agreement, an obligation would put us in a situation where we are lost because we have nothing to contribute. We can't contribute anything that actually is meritorious. So when you look at it from the perspective of of that, God is actually recognizing our lostness. Now, we don't always recognize that. So when God initiated the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, excuse me, in Sinai, when God told them about this covenant, they said, all the Lord has said what? We will do and be obedient. And this is what I think Paul is talking about in Galatians when he said the law was added. It was added to help us see that all the Lord has said we can't be obedient to. Because 40 days later, they weren't obedient. So the law actually brings us to a realization of our lostness and the impossibility of us actually contributing to this covenant. It shows us how lost and sinful we are. It continually reflects to us, like in a mirror, our sinfulness and leads us to put our trust 100% in Jesus Christ. Okay, so the important thing about the covenant has to do with, and what I'm hearing you all saying, is that God wants us to recognize that we cannot do anything. In fact, as I like to say, this is not a potluck. Is that right? This is dinner. He's providing the dinner. Now, let me ask you a question, Bob, keying off what you just said. This is a simple question. Did the promise... That's the kind I need. Thank you. What? That's the kind I need. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, did the promise precede or follow Abraham's obedience? Preceded. Okay. Next question. question, but he was hesitant. Next question. Did the promise precede or follow Abraham's faith? Preceded. It preceded. That is a significant point because sometimes faith, even faith, can become a work. Is that right? And so we have to be very careful about that. Yeah, it's, it's in how we process faith. You can process faith as my obligatory response to God, or you can process faith as my heart appreciation of what he's already done. And those are two different mindsets. Yes. Two different mindsets. One is an old covenant mindset. I'm following God out of a sense of obligation because I'm required to do so. Ellen White says, if we obey out of a sense of obligation merely because we're required to do so, we do not obey. Okay. All right. And James, you've already uh, taken us there a little bit, but let us continue and read a few more verses, and then we'll come to the crucial question you just mentioned about the law. Uh, And just to summarize again with this this section, it is clear that God wants to remove every confidence we have in the flesh, right? In fact, that's why Abraham was circumcised. Circumcision for Abraham was not a work. It was, Abraham, I want you to remove every confidence in the flesh. All right, now, um, let's read this, and then we'll come to the law. So in Galatians, I need to get there myself, Galatians, back to Galatians chapter 3, 
verse 17, and this I say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance was of law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? My question to you is, why then the law? Elsewhere in Romans, Paul says, why then the law? What purpose does it serve? And then the question then that says, it was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Um, so let's discuss that. Why then the law? What purpose was it added? And, and, and why was it added? What does the seed coming have to do with the law or even transgression? Yeah, I, f I find the answer in verse 24. I have a weird translation Bible. Uh, verse 24 says, the law then was our guardian unto Christ so that we could be justified by faith. It seemed that the law was this temporary school teacher, a tutor in some translations. Um, back then, these rich families would have a, a slave come and be a teacher to the heirs of the family. And this, this school teacher would hit, would, would, would totally discipline this child, uh, totally underneath the authority of the master, but a little bit above the child. And until the appropriate age came, when the child became an adult, then the school teacher just reverted back to, to a slave. And the, the law kind of functions in that capacity until Jesus was to come, until the right time of, of adulthood, if you will, uh, the fullness of time. Uh, this school teacher, the law is to discipline us, is to teach us that we are sinners, that whatever you do, you, you're, and it drives us to the foot of the cross, drives us to a deeper hope for the faith. Uh, that's the function of the law, according to this verse. Okay. Uh, verse. All right. All right. I just want to read a quote uh, that goes along with that. This is from Faith and Works, uh, page 103. It says, As the penitent sinner, contrite before God, discerns Christ's atonement in his behalf and accepts this atonement as his only hope in this life and the future life, his sins are pardoned. This is justification by faith. And so as, as we see that we can't fulfill the law, but Jesus has. Okay. He's our only hope in this life and the future. Okay. And we rest in that promise. That's justification by faith. Okay. Lindy, a really good quote also from Romans chapter 5, where Paul is dealing with this subject. Yes. And verse 20, uh, just a quick snippet. He says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Okay. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Praise so God. the law came in to show us how sinful we are. And Therefore, the law is never nullified. It's never disillusioned. It's never, it never ends. It's never done away with because we need a continual reminder of how sinful we are. The okay. law is not just a code of moral do's and don'ts. The law is a revelation of the character of God. It's the heart of God. It's the heart of unselfish love. And so the more we see the principles of God's government and we see who he is through his law, the more we realize how selfish and self-centered we are and the more we see our need of Jesus. Okay. I, it's been helpful for me to think, why didn't God give the Ten Commandments on stone to Abraham? Mm -hmm. Well, he was a different, more mature relationship. God was actually condescending to sort of meet the Israelites where they, they needed those ten laws posted right in front of them to, to see their true condition. Whereas Abraham had a more mature experience than they did. There's this fascinating quote I'm sure we're all familiar with from Patriarchs and Prophets 364, but just listen to what she's saying about how God is related to us because we needed to. 
If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. No need for circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, they would never have been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for the proclaiming of the law from Sinai engraved on tables of stone. And the people practiced, had the people practiced the principle of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional uh, instructions given to Moses. So God is progressively meeting us where we're at in our levels of immaturity. Uh, That doesn't mean the law has always been there, but he had to express it in a more direct, uh, revelatory way because of our immaturity. Okay. Um, I want to move to the next question, but I was anticipating that one of you would discuss something related to Romans chapter 7, where Paul says that the law is holy, it's just, and it's good. And Paul is saying, but how am I going to fulfill it? In other words, it has to be fulfilled, right? And then later on in Romans chapter 8, let's just turn over there very quickly, because the law is not going anywhere. It is here to stay. It must be obeyed. In fact, it is a transcript of God's character. And the ultimate idea of the covenant is to bring us back in harmony, reconciled to God, and fulfilling all he wants us to do. So Romans chapter 8, as we close and go to another very important and practical question, Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. By the way, as he is experiencing this as us, this is also our hope. That the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. By faith, we grasp hold of what he did by faith and make it our own. Um, So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We have a very few minutes for this uh, next question because uh, we just have a very few minutes left. Lindy, you're so organized, but we, we can't always follow yes. the, the organization. That's true. I just want to illustrate this a little bit. When I wash and wax my car, yes. and it's perfectly clean, I have an extra measure of desire to keep it clean. Yes. When my car is dirty, I don't care. And so when the the gospel says to us, Jesus says to us, I give you my righteousness. We have a perfectly clean, waxed, polished car. It's perfect. And and we are, and the illustration fails a little bit, of course, maybe a lot, but we are motivated by the love of God because of the righteousness, the gift we receive from Christ to to keep clean, to stay clean, if you know what I'm saying. Yes. But when we're dirty, when we're guilty, yes. we just yes. that just drives us to, to, to not care. Yes. If you understand yes, what I'm saying. I do. So, and, okay. and James, my organization is not natural to me. It's dictated by that <laughs> clock down there. <laughs> In one minute, let me ask this question because I do want to make some summary remarks. Seventh-day Adventists have something unique to say. In fact, I believe that we were not meant to be here as a as a regular denomination because we are a prophetic movement with a prophetic voice. A prophet has something unique to say, and as we don't have something unique to say, we should not exist. No prophet, no message, we shouldn't exist. 
So what are the implications on what we have studied here for the preaching of the gospel in the context of the third angel's message? The one that says, you know, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One no, minute. Just quickly, it. you know, Ellen White says that justification by faith, that everything we've been talking about is the third angel's message in verity. Yes. And, yes. you know, I just, when we have this devotion to Christ, when we're living this, you can't help but share it. And this quote from Steps to Christ really touches me. It says, when the love of Christ is enshrined in the heart, like sweet fragrance, it cannot be hidden. Its holy influence will be felt by all with whom we come in contact. The spirit of Christ in the heart is like a spring in the desert, flowing to refresh all and making those who are ready to perish eager to drink of the water of life. Love to Jesus will be manifested in a desire to work as he worked for the blessing and uplifting of humanity. It would lead to love, tenderness, and sympathy toward all the creatures of our Heavenly Father. And so, if, if we see, for example, in Second, uh, Second Peter chapter 3, that the reason Jesus hasn't come yes. is because of us. Yes. It's because we haven't appropriated that faith of Jesus, the love of God, and so we haven't actually had that true desire to go out and share it. Yes. And just to back up what you just said, there's a quote. She said, we haven't entered in because of unbelief. That's right. Okay. I'm just looking at righteous by faith. There's so many counterfeits when it comes to righteous by faith. You have righteous by works by which the majority of the world has religions based around that. You also have unrighteousness by faith. You have people, Christian denominations, who believe in double predestination and that God has preordained and et cetera, et cetera. And you have righteous by, by presumption that, yeah, you just kind of yes. you know, wing it. Yes. Could it be that Seventh-day Adventists have been called for this time to really preach a biblical Absolutely. righteousness by faith? Amen. Praise God. Let's do it. I want to uh, wrap up in the few minutes we have left, um, recognizing a, a very important thought. And that is that the giver of the promise, when the promise was made to Abraham, it was made by, it says, Yahweh, that is the self-existent God. That promise was given to Jesus Christ. God gave God the promise. Is that very unusual? And so as we look at the initiator of the covenant and the recipient of the covenant, we see a very unique relationship there in the Godhead that's very salvific for us. And I wanted to conclude our, talk, our concept today by looking at Genesis chapter 15 very, very quickly because you don't have much time. Genesis chapter 15, this is the last text that the quarterly actually gave us. And um, it just says there that Abraham was having a difficult time, a struggle with faith. And he said, Lord, how do I know that somebody in my home from my loins will be the heir? And Jesus told him to count the, God told him to count the stars and so forth. And he says, but I need more than that. And so God asked Abraham to bring him a three-year-old heifer, a female goat, and a ram, and then two birds. Abraham then cut those um, animals in half and separated the pieces. And then, although the text doesn't say it, Ellen White said he walked between them. Mysteriously, maybe not so mysteriously, a deep uh, supernatural sleep came upon him as the sun was going down. Now, what's going on in this text? There's an ancient treaty where a superior person... 
and an inferior person would have a contract. Um, and in that contract, several things were laid out. There were stipulations, and the stipulations were blessings if you obeyed, curses if you disobeyed. And as a ratification of that covenant, the both of them were to walk between the pieces that were severed, signifying if we disobey with this contract, so happened to us as has happened to these animals. I want you to draw your attention in Genesis chapter 15. It says in verse 17, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Ellen White says that this represents the Godhead. This is divine. This is God the Son, God the Father. The text does not say that Abraham and these two walked between the pieces, which is what was happening in the ancient Near East treaties. This was God the Father saying, I've got this. May God be ripped from God if we are not faithful to deliver an our promise to make you righteous, to sanctify you, to justify you, and to give you a work to do. And I think the beauty of what we have been discussing here today, that promise from the initiator, Yahweh, God the Father, and Jesus Christ the seed, God the Son, by faith the seed fulfilled the mission. And when Jesus cried on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a fulfillment of walking between those pieces, God being ripped from God. I want to thank James and Justin and Elias and Bob and all of you for participating. And I'd like to have prayer as we close. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, what a gracious and wonderful, beautiful God you are. I pray that as we've opened the word, not by us, but by the power of your spirit, that you've opened truth to our hearts that's transforming. For Jesus' sake, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.